It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, not Sue Gray. Coming up on today's episode, is the red wall a red herring? A really interesting conversation about a new report out, which basically suggests that politicians are too obsessed with the red wall, or at least everyone's idea of the red wall is slightly different, and it might mean that they're missing out on the voters who really count. So that's coming up on our big thing in just a moment. Before that, of course, it's our columnist panel. No David Aronovich this week. He's off having a spa or something. So instead, uh, pa- Daniel Finkelstein was joined by Patrick Kidd. The Columnists on Times Radio. Yes, and normally at this time we'd be joined by Finkelvich, but uh, David Ivanovich is, uh, I mean, I don't know what he's doing. I assume it's some sort of spa break. Maybe he's, <laughs> maybe he's climbing that ladder he keeps behind him uh, when he comes in on the Zoom. So we are joined by Daniel Finkelstein. Hello. Morning. And joining us in the studio, Patrick Kidd. Morning, Matt. Morning. Nice to have you both here. Finkel Kidd. Much better. Rolls off the tongue. Rolls off the tongue. <laughs> I'm afraid Kid is a Scottish name from Dundee, so it's all just a bit grim and monotone. <laughs> Finkelstein, isn't it? Finkelstein and Aronovich, wonderful. Grim Thank you for name. asking me, Matt, what I've achieved in the last five Go months. On, it's then. very what, kind of you. What have you um, achieved in the last five well, months? Well, actually, in the last 48 hours. Yesterday, I submitted my book. Uh, I've been working on for nearly three years. and um, Is it a Mills and Boone blockbuster? <laughs> <laughs> if Mills and Boone involve concentration camps and the Gulag, then yes. <laughs> no, it's a story about my my family and oh, uh, their experience in the Second World War. But I've I've wanted to write that for years and I've wanted, always wanted to write a book. So for me, it's a sort of big, uh, big moment. And how, is that it now? No, well, you know... Uh, anyone... Having never written a book before, I don't know. No, so there's... Uh, immediately, there's the task, which I didn't realise would come straight away, of trying to find the pictures that go with it, uh, some of which are family ones, but even those, I think, you've got copyright issues and things like that. Uh, but then the publishers will doubtless come back with a number of comments, some of which will require me to make some some alterations. I hope not too many, but uh, but I'm sure they will. But, uh, you know, it's a kind of... It's a very odd feeling when, you, when you've spent, you know, almost every day as... I've had to do loads of writing suddenly to find that you're not well, doing free that. time. You can have a party. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what have you achieved in the last five months, Patrick? Oh, gosh, not very much. Um, I mean, I remember the days when we were in here permanently and five months would be what you needed to come up in the lifts, generally. Just, just wait a bit. <laughs> I, I got, some, got some lights for the bathroom after about three months. That's good. They That's were, the sort of thing we want. Then they were the wrong lights. They Light. didn't work. So uh, the, the bathroom <laughs> is still dark. We're about two months into that now. So... Uh, Excellent, excellent. Well, um, do get in touch. What have you managed to achieve for the last five months? Uh, it has taken Sue Gray to write her, you know what. But five months is nothing. I mean, John Shawcott was, what, about 23 that years? That is true. Like that? Although that was about the invasion of a war, not the invasion of a 
drinks cabinet. Didn't involve a suitcase of yeah, wine. Exactly, exactly. Now, uh, the question I want to put to you, given that everything's swirling around, I'm just going to just, just some of the messages we've had today. Uh, snore, snore, snore. Partygate, partygate, partygate. Meet, whilst, meanwhile, the economy is trashed. Putin's war in Ukraine continues. People can't afford to put on the f- put food on the table. Uh, uh, we've had low. The media's still banging on about a party. Uh, why does this matter, Danny? Oh, it obviously um, matters. I mean, look, everyone can can have their own view of it. The reason why I took the position that I did is because I thought it crossed a line. The Prime Minister sets rules and the Prime Minister should keep the rules and shouldn't preside over a culture, which clearly happened in Downing Street, of uh, people breaking those rules. If the... These rules, of course, sound anomalous. People were not allowed to have, you know, small gatherings involving a birthday cake. It sounds ridiculous, but that's what we did. And the reason we did those apparently anonymous, anomalous, apparently ridiculous things is because we thought they saved lives. It was very, very serious. So we did this, you know, we did this incredibly difficult thing on incredibly small, intrusive events uh, for a reason. And, and so therefore, for people now to sweeping to go, it's, abs- it's a bit like saying it's absurd that you couldn't go out of your house uh, during periods of lockdown. Well, yes, it was absurd, but we knew that we had to do it because otherwise more people would die. So my view is that uh, we cannot shrug our shoulders over this. But I do know other people um, have made up their minds on it. I've got some sympathy with the idea that we can't just talk about this and nothing but this. Um, however, we're not planning to do that. We've got this report coming and then I think um, people can make their judgments. If the Conservative Party makes the judgment that uh, it doesn't matter to it, I think the electorate will say that they are they're making a misjudgment and it does matter to the voters uh, but that is a risk that the Conservative Party will have to, to uh, accept if it's going to go down this path. Patrick, are you... Are you- Gripped by it, fed up with it. <laughs> a mixture of both. I am still much more annoyed the rules were applied in the first place. I, th- I think in many cases they were cruel, especially the bans on uh, numbers of funerals. You hear about um, grieving widows being told they couldn't be comforted by their son. I think that that should never have applied. I whatever totally the disagree. Risk. And the reason I totally disagree is it was not possible to do what people thought, which is we'll allow this uh, to happen in this case, we'll allow that to happen in that case. People couldn't follow that. They could follow it if they knew that we were just doing. Everything wasn't allowed, any of these gatherings, whatever but, they were. But that, goes, and, to, and that I think, goes to the heart of the problem with this photo, which is on the front of, well, actually not the Daily Mail, but most of the papers today, that actually there was no grey area. There was, you know, there is, th- th- that's why, no. you're, right, you're right, everything was banned. Yes, well, that's why I think this yeah. is completely unacceptable behaviour. Yeah. But are we going back now and trying to say, you know, how could we have applied the rules in such a petty way? that We, we did that knowing what we were doing because it was obvious that... The moment any complications were issued into it, everyone would go, I can't understand it. I don't know how it works. And there was a sort of feeling of, of why should I uh, do this if somebody else can buy my house, if it's my parents, they can buy my house, or if they're, if they're an estate agent, I can't sell a house. You know, all sorts of, you know, there was all this nonsense about scotch eggs. When they set yes. the, when they, they set the rules, there were bound to be difficult boundaries, but we needed to keep them as simple as possible. And that was done for a reason, however difficult it was. But for the government then to say, we set these unbelievably difficult, quite cruel rules. They were quite cruel. Uh, I thought they were necessary, but they were quite cruel. And then not to abide by them is just absolutely outrageous. I, I think the, tr- the trouble is that the one person who seems to have resigned over this is one person who said that she wasn't at one of these parties. Uh, Allegra Stratton, right back at the beginning, said, well, I went home. And then she resigned because she realised it was, it was cruel and enormous. How does this end up? 
it, it either ends up with Boris Johnson having a conscience and deciding he shouldn't. That's not going to happen, obviously. It could end up with the parliamentary party putting in the, the letters to Graham Brady. I'm not sure that's going to happen. So eventually, ultimately, all that matters is whether the public at a general election decide this is a big enough reason to get rid of them. And that's Johnson's gamble, is that he thinks the public won't care. It'll be, inter it'll be integrated into his leadership approval ratings. And leadership approval ratings are related to the times for a change feel. Uh, if you get a time for a change feel and uh, poor leadership approval ratings and you do poorly on the economy, all of which are possible, you can't win an election. So if the Conservative Party thinks that the electorate um, will not care, this is because they haven't been watching how this has now been integrated into people's views of the Prime Minister. Um, they may be there isn't some evidence in focus groups of people saying, stop going on about it, although mainly they're annoyed with the... I think James Johnson said this, mainly they're annoyed with the government um, for, um, you know, not doing anything about yeah. it, and therefore we're all still talking about it. Uh, but um, if the Conservative Party thinks people don't care about it or they they all think it's just a birthday cake, I think that is totally to misread the public mood about well, it. Well, we seem, we seem to carry on listening to um, Neil Ferguson despite he, him... Uh, breaking the rules to bring his lover across London. I mean, he resigned, but still didn't get off the airwaves. So, I mean, hypocrisy, I suppose, go, goes in every direction. I, I, I do wonder whether breaching the threshold for a vote no confidence is being underpriced at the moment. I think the, if you actually looked at the number of MPs who said, I want to wait for Sue Gray, mm -hmm. you know, even David Simmons we had on a minute ago was saying uh, he wants to hear the Prime Minister's uh, explanation, but like in Blackadder, it's got to be phenomenally good. <laughs> I th I do wonder if there could be a moment this week yes. where it might it might suddenly catch somebody you know the, the quiet anonymous non airwave enthusiasts. Well, Peter Aldous was an interesting yes. name. I mean, yeah. he is a sort of Gussie Fink Nottle type character. You wouldn't hurt a fly, but for him to be getting cross about this, perhaps might reflect it, some of the others. It requires fifty four people to. Uh, uh, I think that's the right number yeah. to uh, put in their letters. Lose um, a couple to, of by elections. To that's down to fifty three. Yeah, but to create a no confidence vote. Um, but that doesn't mean he'll lose the no confidence no. vote. And we, I think at the moment that seems unlikely. Now, look, the dynamics of that could change. It all depends on the timing and the exact nature of the Sugre report and the Standards and Privileges Committee on the issue of lying to the House of Commons, which does seem to be, um, you know, in question when you look at this picture this morning on the front of the paper. And what about the Cabinet? I mean, the Cabinet could act. I mean, he does seem... I mean, listening to Grant Shapps, and I've known Grant Shapps for a long time, He's, as far as I can tell, I mean, he's a decent minister, a decent chap. What is he doing going on the telly this morning and trying to argue that he's not a party? At some point, what don't the cabinet do say, I'm not doing this anymore? Well, one or two of them refuse to do it. He, one of, the, you know, his, his contributions to the government is he's always willing to go on and he's uh, quite lucid at doing it. This is, an in, you know, occasionally he hits on an indefensible thing, which he can't, you know, which he then sounds... And he, his advantage to the prime, his sort of what he offers the prime minister is his willingness to take a hit for the prime minister, you know, uh, and that's as a result of that, he gets promote, you know, he gets yeah. promoted inside the government. Personally, you know, I don't think it's worth it, but uh, you know, Grant will have to decide that for himself, won't he? <laughs> Let's move on and talk about Chelsea, Chelsea Flower Show, Patrick. Yes, I made my first visit yesterday. It was the first time you'd been? I'd never been to Chelsea Flower Show. It was rather lovely. The sun didn't shine, which is good because I hate heat. Um, and it was... I was watching on the telly last night, very jealous of the people who were there, but it did look a bit gloomy. It was very gloomy, spotted with rain. Um, we, we had a moment of excitement where um, a, a woman who turned out to be um, Ainsley Harriet's sister fell into a pond. 
And I, I, I messaged uh, Faria Karim, our reporter, who was there with me, saying, I bet you the Daily Mail tries to claim he saved her from drowning. Six minutes later, up popped on Daily Mail, <laughs> Ainsley Harriet saves woman from drowning. No, she got a bit soggy. But <laughs> um, normal, it, I'm quite surprised because normally you can't get close enough to the gardens to... To, to end up in the water. Well, this is this was Celebrity Monday, you oh, see. So they, they and there were lots of sort of sea listers. I, I quite enjoyed spotting people like Janet Ellis. I mean, there was the Blue Peter Garden. So yeah, there were yeah, eleven yeah, yeah. Blue Peter presenters. Like her, Valerie Singleton was getting all the attention. Um, I couldn't go round a corner without seeing Johnny Ball um, with with his daughter, who's who's in radio. I understand. Yeah. And um, <laughs> and and there were very there was a sort of seven foot tall drag queen as well, who I, I probably should identify if I watched RuPaul, but. Um, it, it was fun, and and the gardens looked beautiful. I I, um, I had uh, as one of my things on uh, in in my who's who uh, hobbies and interests. It was not gardening, uh, <laughs> and that's because my father um, told me that he was going to put that on his entry, uh, and then he lost his nerve and didn't do it. So I, when I got in, I thought that's what I'm going to do. Is that true in. though? Yes. You're not absolutely a fan. no. It isn't. Um, uh, uh, no, I'm not. I mean, I do like a nice garden and. Um, Nikki, my wife, likes the garden, um, uh, and so she likes a bit of gardening. Um, and it's wonderful to go to places like Sissinghurst very occasionally. So I think it would be ridiculous to say I couldn't, I can't see the attraction of the Chelsea Flower Show. I sort of can, but it's not the thing it's that not, I would rush to. It's, no. not, it's no. not the Chelsea I rush it's to. Not the Chelsea, <laughs> it's not the Chelsea you're interested in. There were these extraordinary... Uh, sculptures and things you could buy you could get a giant eagle made out of filipino driftwood plucking a salmon from a water feature danny you can for, treat yourself for they've written your book Thirty thousand, um <laughs> uh, or you could get a sort of um mrs tiggywinkle hanging out um in, done in, in metal for about twelve thousand. do you th- is it do either of you think it's in any way problematic that the queen didn't go to the state opening of parliament but did go to chelsea no, and the windsor horse show because she because it's obvious that she can go the reason she can't come into parliament is because uh, she has mobility problems and it's difficult for her to get into in and out of Parliament in a way that it isn't at the Chelsea Flower Show in Windsor. So um, I, I, I thought, you know, I did that thought pass through my mind, but that's the reason why she didn't do that. Surely some arrangements could be made. It's difficult. Actually. You can't get a golf cart down the corridors of the House of Lords. No, so, so, I mean, to talk tax, those are lift. You know, I mean, she could yeah. come, and of course, through a different entrance. There are some accessible entrances, but it's a more general problem with that building yeah. that it's not very accessible. Uh, and I suspect she felt the the kind of pomp of the occasion would be more damaged than the pomp of the, uh, the Chelsea Flower Show is by her not being able to walk and using a buggy. And it may also just be that she'd had different mobility problems on different days. I mean, yeah, she's yeah. 96 and we have to be um, understanding of that. I, I was told that um, it was a few years ago she she took the lift up to the, 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 the state opening. In, in the past, she would walk up the Norman steps. And on this, there was a little backlit service lift, really. And as she got up, the door came open and there was a cleaner there who apparently said, I'll get the next one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's nice. Well, I'm glad. I, 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 I personally think it's a little bit odd. But uh, I don't know. I just, I just think having missed the state opening of parliament, is literally the head of state is there for the state opening of parliament. Do you feel that the head of state should have come to the state opening of parliament in a mobility scooter? Yeah. 
Why okay. not? Other, well, other look, people. I, I think members I, of the House look, of Lords that's, that's go around. Completely and look, I mean, that's completely argument. In fact, I've just been reading about Yalta and Franklin Roosevelt always going around in a wheelchair and how they disguise that and thinking, I don't suppose you'd need to do that now. And then thinking about this, it looks like you would. So maybe it would have made a statement of its own. Yeah. I can see that. Not like other 96 But of course, there are the. Yes, there are. They can bling it up a bit, stick yes. the mace in the basket on the front. Well, Lord Mackay of Clash Fern is still taking part at 97. But he doesn't quite have the dodgy. He doesn't have the mobility problem. Patrick Kidd and Daniel Finkelstein there. And of course, you can read them in The Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, is the red wall a red herring? You're listening to the Red Box podcast. Now it's time for this The Big Thing on Times Radio. Uh, you're going to head back to the 2019 general election when the Red Wall came tumbling down. That's what everyone was talking about. Well, the Conservatives won key marginals from Greater Manchester to Lincolnshire, the Black Country to Northumberland, seats like Lee, Workerton, Blythe Valley and Redcar. The first time in decades that some had turned blue. In fact, some had been red since the dawn of time. Since then, politicians have become obsessed with the Red Wall. But should they be? Two political scientists say they need this. They need to end this preoccupation with the Red Wall and focus on real voters where they actually live. Joining me to talk uh, uh, through the report, which is out today, is Professor Jane Green from the Nuffield College of Oxford University, part of the British Election Study. Morning. Good morning. Nice, nice to have you, you with us. And uh, Dr Rose de Goose from the University of Reading. Morning to you as well. Good morning. Nice to have you with us. So uh, the report is called Red Wall, Red Herring. Uh, Jane, first of all, just explain to me where we talk about the red, because there's even a disagreement as to where, yeah, it, where is the red wall? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so you know, it's just been really interesting, hasn't it? So when James Canagosorium put forward this idea of the red wall, he was, you know, brilliant. It was a really important identification of key seats that had been moving towards the Conservatives over time, and they, of course, then fell in very, very large number in 2019. Now we absolutely think that's a really helpful distinction, and those seats are really important to identify. And and what he said was really um, accurate and really helpful. But what's happened is we now think about those seats in all sorts of ways and you know people have really I think thought about the increasing support for the Conservatives amongst working class voters and lower income voters and and made that assumption now that well actually the Conservatives are really appealing to people who are left behind people who have low incomes people who really feel you know, that they, they they need much more support, hence levelling up. Um, and obviously there was a lot of reason behind that in terms of Brexit too. But what we wanted to do was just say, well, actually the predominant Conservative support is among higher, um, more economically secure voters. And also there are some other things around, um, if you kind of think about caricatures, about these people are left behind and they don't like immigration and they're very pro-Brexit. You know, for whom lots is that true? Lots of assumptions are being made there. And it's, yeah. also, it's also the sort of the implication that uh, red wall equals north equals poor. That's right. the, the sort of the thread that, that runs through it all the time. So yeah. let, I tell you, well, let's, uh, let's jump in. We've got five main takeaways from your report. Red wall. Yeah, we've got lots of these. So uh, bear with us. Uh, Rose, first of all, let's talk about then economic security. Who who are the economic secure, the economically insecure, 
and um, who, which, which parties are doing well amongst those groups? Because the, the implication has been uh, Labour lost all of the poor, insecure, economically insecure people, and that's where the Tories made gains. Yes, yeah. So in the report, we, uh, we look at this concept of economic uh, security and we kind of say, you know, we often look at income as a way to establish if people uh, are well off, but really there's much more to, to someone's financial situation. And so uh, we really look at whether or not people feel that they are economically uh, secure. Uh, and we find that this is much more related to other things, such as their, um, you know, if they're in stable work, uh, if they own a home is very important. Uh, and whether they have savings. Uh, and so if we look at kind of someone's financial or economic situation in that way, uh, we find actually that older people uh, on average, uh, so this is obviously averages, yeah, of course. Um, are much more economically secure than younger people. Um, and specifically, we find that the group that's most economically insecure is younger people without a graduate degree. Uh, and so we find that an, in older generations, uh, it was obviously much less likely that people had a degree. And so this distinction between people with and without a degree in terms of their economic security is much smaller for older people. Um, whereas for younger people, we start to see this growing divide between people who do have a, a degree and people who don't. Uh, and so we really find that it's the younger people without degrees that are economically insecure, whereas um, older voters, older people, uh, even those uh, without a university degree, because they've been able to build up these assets um, and wealth. And again, these are average. They're sort of more settled in life. Whatever they ended up doing, they might, you know, they might have bought a house or they're content with rent or whatever exactly. it might be that they are... They know where they are. Exactly, yes, yes. And because obviously it used to be the case that far fewer people went to university uh, and so that was less of a determinant in terms of being able to do things like like buy a house or uh, build up uh, savings. And so that's why we kind of say, well, obviously this this differences across generations are really important, but also the differences within generations are really important. So when we talk about the Conservatives making gains in the Red Wall, were they making those gains amongst older, actually economically secure people? Well, in terms of gains, I guess that's um, in, in in the sense that they that they won uh, a majority and that they made gains. They will have done well amongst all groups in yep. the electorate. So that's that's clear. Uh, and so in that sense, they will have made some gains amongst these younger non-graduate voters for sure. But the core of the their support is still with these older, more secure, economically secure voters. And that's, that's where their base is coming from. Okay, we yeah. move on. Uh, let's do the next one. Number two. Red wall. Red wall. Yeah, I'm not sure about that one. Um, <laughs> Jane, um, let's talk about who these people really are and what they think about things. You touched on immigration, but the, the, the portrayal of it, people in the red wall supported Brexit, they don't like immigration, right. culturally conservative. Is that true? So... One of the things that you might think is that somebody who's got economic grievances and who really feels economically insecure, those are the people that have the strongest kind of concerns about immigration. They have the strongest support for Brexit and they may be more socially conservative. And that's the kind of what we'd think. So that's definitely the case for some people um, who do feel economically left behind, um, who do have concerns about their economic situation and do have concerns about immigration and want to support Brexit because of it. But the key thing is that if we look at the people with the greatest economic security, those are the people with the strongest support for Brexit and the strongest anti-immigration concerns and the strongest social conservatism. And so we just really need 
need to think about this across kind of those age and education splits. We've known for, you know, since 2019 and 2017 that age and education is super important. Um, But I think, you know, it's just kind of breaking that down and saying, well, at older age groups, as Rose was saying, the education divide isn't very big economically. At younger groups, it is. And that leads us to those different expectations because we find that it's the older individuals who support Brexit the most, who have the strongest concerns about immigration, but also are the most economically secure so so essentially the 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 characterization uh has been people who voted for brexit were the people who for whom life was not great and they wanted to roll the dice for a change yeah and actually there's a big group of people who for, for whom life was pretty good they were pretty secure and they so therefore there was no risk for them yeah giving it a go and and remembering that the the coalition in support of brexit was made up of both of those groups exactly and it's just we all we really wanted to say today was that we just wanted to refocus really because the the coalition of support for leave was very broad like you mm. say it was comprised of people who yes felt economically left behind and also had concerns about immigration but it was also very heavily comprised of these people that felt economically secure and the interesting thing then is well does that mean that leveling up's not a good idea or does that mean that inequality across the country needs to be resolved well, that's different and so it might be the case that you've got people that feel quite secure but they live in parts of the country that have indeed been left behind. And that's a sort of, you know, we just need to, I think politicians need to think, well, that levelling up agenda needs to appeal to people that have economic security and those who don't as well. And when it comes to being sort of culturally conservative and the culture wars that we hear a lot about, um, is is that a fair reflection? When we hear that, you know, the government's starting around about flags or statues or the BBC or whatever, is that what's playing well in the red wall? So we can't tell you exactly what's playing well in the Red Wall, but we can say, you know, from our evidence, we think that the economy is going to be really crucial. I mean, it's always really crucial. Yeah. And it sort of, it sounds like, I mean, even saying that, it's like, well, yeah, of course. But actually, if the Conservatives have had, you know, a lot of their support, A, because of Brexit, yes, but B, because people felt secure, then losing that security is a really big deal. And it's also a really big deal for Labour because Labour's support has been predominantly amongst graduates and younger graduates. And you might think, Think, oh well they'll just stick with the Labour Party because they care about you know they share Labour's values on those sort of culture issues but actually if they become more economically secure then Labour needs to needs to think about that too so in the con- context of the cost of living crisis the loss of economic security could be really damaging especially of course to the party in government at the at the time okay let's move on this is number three red wall Rose, we're talking. Let's talk at the voting behaviour because one of the things which I think sometimes gets overlooked when we talk about the red wall because it's Boris Johnson who smashed down the red yep. wall in 2019. But actually, Theresa May did quite a lot of chipping away at the. It's not the grout, is it? Whatever the the, the mortar that's holding the bricks together in the red wall in 2017. So this is a, this is not a sort of blip in 2019. This has been part of a trend. Yeah, yeah, we kind of uh, show as well that uh, the big kind of transition towards like these age and education divides actually already starts in 2017. Uh, And so this is really not just a story about, um, you know, shifts that just occur in 2019 or just occur uh, under Boris Johnson. Um, So already in 2017, we see that the Conservative Party really starts to draw. um, I mean, they've always drawn more more older voters. But in 2017, we specifically see younger voters going to the Labour Party uh, much more clearly. Uh, And in the wake of of the Brexit referendum, we also see that the Conservative Party really becomes the party that gains all of this support amongst mostly non-graduate voters, whereas 
Labour becomes the party of uh, kind of the graduate uh, graduate voters. But as as Jane mentions, it would be uh, the temptation is a bit to say, okay, and so all these um, you know non graduate voters are also the socially conservative pro Brexit uh, voters, and all these graduate voters are all the uh, you know the uh, the pro Remain um, um, kind of socially progressive voters. Uh, and to some extent, obviously, um, th- those two things do go together. But again, as we say, when we look actually at uh, across the age uh, divide, then we find that it is the older non-graduate voters that are actually the most uh, socially conservative. Uh, and so younger voters in general are um, m- were more pro-Remain, obviously. Uh, but it mattered a lot whether or not people also had... Uh, a degree or not, and whether they were economically secure or not. And so uh, to just look at one or two things is a bit, um, uh, yeah, it doesn't it's quite show that it, it's complicated, exactly. And when we're talking about graduates and non-graduates, is there something about the red wall that there are fewer graduates? Does that, does that play a difference? Or is there a proportion of graduates even across the country? So it's really important to think about kind of which of the key groups. So we wanted to identify which of the key groups that we might want to worry about um, in terms of this economic security story. There's been loads of focus on older non-graduates, where they live, so in the in the Red Wall, and lots of those constituencies which have seen economic decline over time have also seen an ageing of the electorates um, as there's been a kind of brain drain, younger people moving. But then there's been also been this focus on younger graduates. What there hasn't been is a focus on younger non-graduates and we don't mean young by the way we mean not I mean it depends what you think of young obviously we're all young but you know we mean women under 50 and men under 40 so this is They're working considered age, younger younger younger, younger, younger in electoral terms younger for us um so this is obviously because we're trying to look across the age distribution and see where the changes are so we have to kind of differentiate between yeah. older and younger but you know what's really crucial for us is this key group of younger non-graduates because these people do report higher economic insecurity and it wasn't obvious to us where these people would you know be living and if you look at the constituency map of where these people um, live we use 2011 data that's the latest data we've got so we really want to look at this again when the new census data comes out but these people are living in all parts of the country yeah we see them in cities, we see them in rural areas, we see them in labour holds, we see them in conservative gains, we see them in areas of the country that voted very strongly for Brexit, and we see them in areas of the country um, that voted a bit more strongly for Remain. So there's a really important picture. And some of these constituencies have really high proportions of younger non-graduates. And so, you know, they're conservative held or the labour held, they're really important um, a segment of the electorate that um, we'd like to direct a bit more focus on too. So go on then, let's, uh, as we continue our trawl for red herrings, uh, here's number four. Red wall. They're getting worse, if anything, these. Uh, so we've talked a lot about the left behind. Everyone talks about the left behind. Who is really left behind, Jane? So... Or is being left behind in the eye of the beholder? Yeah, I think, I think it's really... You know, there's places that, that I think genuinely in the country that really feel left behind. And that might mean they feel ignored and that might mean that there's all sorts of economic outcomes. But then there are obviously individuals within those places um, and so there are people who feel economically insecure. We're focusing on this feeling, these kind of worries, these people that really worry about, you know, whether or not they can like meet an emergency expense, have they had to borrow money? We find um, in our data, we look at whether or not people have had to borrow money in the last 12 months for essentials. So 
this is a really kind of precarious kind of form of, you know, lifestyle. This is not just people that don't have loads of savings. You know, this is people that really are struggling to get by. And, um, you know, as we've said many times um, just in, in our chat already, that these reports of having to borrow and also not being able to find a, you know money for an emergency expense are much higher amongst younger non-graduates so these are the under 50s or the under 40s um and that's really you know we we studied this in 2018 we had um new british election study data in 2018 and of course that was before the covid pandemic and before the cost of living crisis and so what's concerning is that there were these really high levels of concern about the economy for these individuals before these economic shocks um and so that's a real worry and we also find that women are more likely to report higher economic insecurity and that tends to be true even for sort of women graduates versus male graduates it tends to be true for women pensioners versus male pensioners. Um, so that's a cause of concern as well, because obviously these are historic inequalities that are then running through. Um, um, and also ethnic minorities are more likely to report higher economic insecurity as well. Uh, and Rose, what happens then if we have got, you know, the, 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 the obvious concern given what's happening with the economy right now is going to be even more of those people who are struggling yeah. with essentials and so on. Is there an, a sort of a... Uh, suf- uh, a, a, a a political uh, um, analysis to where those people go? Or is it more straightforward that actually what we've seen, right, we, people have talked about it after the Australian results, people just vote for the other lot. And yeah. that actually what happened after the financial crash was, you know, 2008, 9, 10, was people voted out what were then actually quite lot, lots of left-wing governments and yeah. then were replaced with right-wing government. And actually what the opposite now seems to be happening. How much of that are we just overcomplicating this? If people are having a tough time... Do they vote for change? Yeah, uh, I mean, it's always difficult to predict, obviously, but uh, we do find that um, people who have higher levels of economic insecurity are more likely to vote for the Labour Party. And so, um, you know, there there is a strong uh, kind of uh, relationship there. And, and uh, so it would suggest that as people become less and less uh, secure, they might start moving away uh, from from the Conservative Party in that sense. And specifically, uh, given that we show that, you know, the source of economic security has been a very strong source of support for the Conservative Party. Um, I guess having, having said that, is that it's obviously also always a, a story of supply. So it will depend a lot on what uh, you know, each of the parties offers, how do they, how do they speak to these uh, groups of voters? Um, you know, what kind of policies might they, um, you know, provide? Or uh, so, so it's a bit, in terms of um, a, a general trend, economic insecurity should benefit the Labour Party. But if they are unable to uh, connect to these people, or if they're unable to, uh, you know, really uh, communicate these people's concerns, then it's, it's not necessarily clear that that's where everyone will go. It's also obviously possible that people would disengage entirely so if they yeah. feel, you know, that neither of the parties is Play really the oil houses, yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah. If if no, if they feel no one is really hearing their concerns, then um, you know they might go somewhere else entirely, or they might decide to just stay at home. Okay, we come to number five in our trawl of red wall, red herrings, red wall. I see Jane's enjoying that one. It's a good I one. Love though, it. I love it's it. It's such a good song. song. It's such a good song. So I suppose let's let's look forward then. Where uh, James Canagasorium came up with the Red Wall originally mm. and it's been completely stretched and distorted out of all uh, meaning. What are the issues or places or types of voters we should be keeping an eye on so that we can claim that we know what's going on in politics? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's like, well, 
if you think about kind of who I would say, if I were, you know, if I was having to make this decision about where these target groups were, I would really be concerned about the change over time in who's feeling more economically insecure now. Um, so we were able to look at this, as I said, in 2018. Um, we're in the, what we say, in the field. So we're running questions. We're asking people at the, at the current time in the British election study some of these questions again. And so that's going to be really crucial because I think it's going to be the people that feel more insecure. I think those are going to be the groups. And like we've tried to say, that's not necessarily just focused on one part of the country. The people that we think are most of ri at risk are feeling more economically insecure. And, you know, some evidence since the pandemic indeed shows that the kinds of people that are going to do, that were most affected by the pandemic were those people that already started out um, feeling more economically precarious. So... I think, you know, those people are living all in all kinds of constituencies. Then lots of those constituencies where um, the conservative Labour marginals are. So looking at people who have become more insecure and indeed if pensioners become more economically insecure now, because, you know, this is not a, like we, we're not saying that this is fixed in stone. Yeah, yeah. It, some of these groups might, may indeed now through the cost of living crisis really, really start to struggle. And I suppose if you're if you considered yourself a, an economically secure pensioner and then then you don't. Yeah. That's as much of a shock to the system than if you're a young person who enters an economically insecure jobs market. That's right. And, you know, you, you might be sitting on a, on you know, you might have a, your own home, but that's not, you know, if you can't actually warm your ha your house, yeah. I mean, that's, that's severe. And, um, you know, you don't necessarily have a liquid asset that you can sell. So unless you have savings, um, unless you have, you know, some kind of other buffer, then indeed losing, being on a low income and losing that sense of safety and I think you know one of the reasons I think economic insecurity or security is so important is it really just makes us feel yeah, safe yeah, yeah. you know and losing that sense of safety I think would be you know very very powerful it's all basic human instinct can you put a roof over your head and put food on the table yeah um, Rose I want to ask you and I suspect this is an entirely separate conversation about the blue wall oh. uh, because there's been lots of talk about the blue wall uh, which I even got cross, cross about because maybe what was just said, which is a Tory, it's not just a Tory, you know, it feels to me like it's the place which has been Tory for a long time and then might be shifting. Is, is there anything we can read across between the red wall and the blue wall? Oh, I don't really know about that, to be honest. Um, I, I think, you know, the blue wall is obviously these, you know, parts of the country where the Liberal Democrats are kind of the exactly, big threat. The, the, yeah, yeah. And they're wealthier um, constituencies on average. And the problem with, like, just thinking about geography is that, you know, what we've got in blue wall seats is lots of individuals who don't feel wealthy. Yes. And indeed won't feel wealthy um, come the next general election unless something really radical changes. Um, so, you know, we've really tried to kind of say, well, the electoral coalitions of the parties really lie within these places yeah, yeah. rather than kind of looking at them as dichotomous kind of groups of areas of the country. And quite often the, the, the argument about the Blue Wall, particularly, you know, in the, in the southwest, is that uh, because they're rural, therefore they must be quite posh. Right. And actually there's lots of rural poverty and so that economic yeah. insecurity plays into that as well. Yeah, and I think what, what Jane says is very true that both with the, the Red Wall and the Blue Wall, um, I guess what we're kind of cautioning against is that we attribute these characteristics of places also to the people that live there. Yeah. Um, and and that's, that just leads to kind of some of the nuance and complexity 
uh, getting lost. So just because, you know, in, as Jane said, you could live in a in a very wealthy place, but y- if you don't have that uh, kind of security yourself, then that will still affect how you vote or the and other way In fact, way it, might, it could affect it. Even, you know, if you're an economically insecure person in a well-off area, that could make you more motivated exactly. to vote. Exactly. Or to, or to, it could yeah. really increase your sense of kind of disconnect. Yeah. yeah. Rather than think, well, everyone's in the same boat. So, you know, that, that, that creates Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Do you know what? It's fascinating. Um, and uh, I know because we've spoken so much about the Red Wall. It's, yeah, it's just a really interesting thing. And the fact we can all now focus on sort of economic insecurity. That's the thing. And when will you get the results back from the survey you're currently doing? Yeah, we'll probably... Um, so the survey will be in the field and then we, we do spend quite a long time making sure the data's really ship-shape. Yeah. Um, so we'll be analysing that over the kind of next six to nine months. Lovely stuff. Well, we'll get you back and talk about that then. Uh, Professor Jane Green from Nuffield College at Oxford University and from the British Election Study, and Dr Rose de Goose from the University of Reading. Thanks very much for coming in and joining us. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times. And it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout. Because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.